Welcome to Digitally Creative. I'm your host, Vincent Ferrari, and today I have a guest who I am so, so excited to talk about. We'll talk about and talk to, because if I'm talking about him, I don't need him to be here. That would be really weird. Um, I was at, as I've said a couple of times, I was at RetroCon in Philly. I had a great time, and one of the people I met there, I was most excited to see what he had, and one of the people I got to meet and talk to for a while was a man who has made one of the coolest DeLorean replicas I have ever seen. And I've seen a few at many car shows. This one was definitely my favorite. And the man behind the car is my new friend, Mr. Tom Silknitter. What's going on, buddy? How you doing? Pretty good, and you? I'm doing I'm doing wonderfully. Um, it was really cool seeing the car in person because everybody says they have a really good, you know, everybody that makes replicas say they have a really good one. But your attention to detail on yours was just like I every time I looked, it was like opening up like another can of worms. Like there's another cool thing to see over here. There's another cool thing to see over here. You did such a beautiful job on that car. Oh, thank you. Um, You know, there's a lot of people that always want to talk about having the most accurate car. And I'm never going to say that. Um, So, you know, like Oliver Holler, who has his time machine and has done stuff with the Team Fox Foundation, everything, you know, he's going to tell you, you know, the the thing is anyone that does a car, of course, they're going to say they built the best car because they're the one that built it. Um, Mm -hmm. I did my car before a lot of people were doing them. I'm in that very early um, wave of people that were going for screen accurate stuff. Um, You know, I was researching parts before the reforms dedicated to the cars. Um, From a fan standpoint, I was the one that figured out what the flux capacitor box was. I found the company and talked to a guy who actually sold them the Universal. But we're going back to 2000. Um, (laughs) Wow. You know, but now it's a it's like a big business. There's people that uh, have their companies dedicated to building time machine replicas. Um, The 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 replica world there's full of people that do i mean we were doing small parts runs in the early 2000s and now it's uh you know it's one guy doing this another guy doing this another guy uh making another thing i mean you can almost you can almost buy a time machine by pieces um as almost as a kid anymore it seems like but uh uh, I mean, you know, the quality of the cars have gotten better. Um, what you said, you've seen other uh, time machines at shows. What what was it that caught the flavor? Why why did you like mine so much? I'm curious to hear what, what, what the, got your the, thing because the, I'm not super 100% screen accurate, but I wasn't I wasn't super worried about that because I was going for something different. I'm just curious what you were picking up on. So one of the things that I noticed about yours, and I think we talked about this at the show, the, the, the first thing that jumped out at me was that yours wasn't pristine, shiny, clean, like it had just rolled off the factory floor and then had everything bolted to it and then rolled onto the show floor. It, it looks like you put a concerted effort into making it look like it was actually used, actually driven, actually a car that you would expect Doc Brown to, to work on, not a pristine off the, off the showroom floor DeLorean. You know, you did all the weathering that you showed. You were showing me the weathering on the on the um, the, 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 the motors, the vents on the top mm-hmm. and around Mr. Fusion. And like the car looks like a used DeLorean, not a brand new DeLorean, because I did feel like a lot of the ones I've seen, they went so far to make it flashy, shiny and pretty that and, and they're beautiful. I mean, I think those are beautiful, too. 
But if I was thinking, you know, critically about what would the car look like if I looked at it up close in the movie, what would Doc Brown have built? It mm-hmm. would have been rusty. It would have been weathered. It would have had, you know, water run marks like the ones you did on the vents. And those are the kinds of details I like. Like you showed me a couple of dents that you left in it because it's like, yeah, that gives it character and it's a stainless steel car. So, of course, it's going to have dents. Yeah. So, I mean, that that is what what I've been proud of of the car most is actually the weathering and the thing is i am a movie prop collector i was collecting props before i ever did a replica car and i collect original props i mean yeah i have a few replicas like the time machine and i have a replica brainwave analyzer and a a replica (laughs) proton pack i have a few replicas but i'm not really a replica collector i like to collect original screen used and production used props um, I mean, I was doing that stuff when I was a really young kid, so I got into it very early. Um, so the thing is, is the magic of movies. And um, I mean, it might not be the same nowadays because more stuff is CGI. There's less props. And even the props they make these days, most of them are, you know, cranked out of a machine. You know, they 3D yeah. print stuff. And um, there was always what fascinated me about movie props, especially when I was a kid, is when you watch it on screen, it looks awesome and great, and it just has a flavor. Um, the thing is, is back then, of course, they were filming on film, so mm-hmm. they would they would have to use lighting and stuff in such a way to get a certain image that they could make into a print that you could see in a movie theater. The thing is, is the quality of the print compared to what we have on our 4K disc at home is not really what the original filmmakers were trying to present. Uh, I'm sure they probably would have loved to have more detail back then, but realistically, the end product was what was on the screen. And right. there's a lot of stuff that disappears when you have a 35 millimeter print uh, at a theater. Um, you know, a lot of mistakes that people pick on now in 4K and finding stuff because we can zoom in and see it. If you watch a 35 millimeter print of like Back to the Future Part 2, there are certain mistakes that you see more at home. And when you watch it on the screen in a darkened theater the way it was originally intended, you don't see it. So what was fascinating is you watch these movies and and you when you actually get to hold an original prop and see how they made it, you start to realize this is just handmade stuff. It looks fantastic and futuristic on screen, but in, in, in hand, it almost – it reminded me about – Kind of like when we used to make props for, you know, the high school musical or high school play. You know, it, it just there's something about the rudimentary of the stuff in person that is not there when it's filmed. And that to me is part of the magic of filmmaking. Um, I'm always fascinated with the, the whole process of how, you know, they can take something mundane and make it look just completely awesome and, and neat. Um, so the thing is, is my car. You know, I'm I'm replicating what Doc Brown did, but I'm also replicating a movie prop. And mm-hmm. my car, I do like to have it look like it was something you would have saw or thought it would be like if it came off of a set. Um, I think a lot of people get so worried about being screen accurate and trying to duplicate every little detail. I mean, I'll be honest, like I don't, you know, the guys that are really screen accurate, they'll be like, I don't have the right clamps on on the wire looms or I don't have this or I don't have that flip side of that is, you know, when I was building my car, I mean, I would go down that rabbit hole too, trying to be super accurate. I know all the details. I've researched the heck out of the cars. I have tons of reference material, um, you know, and I was a source of a lot of reference material for a lot of the builders. So I know all the stuff that isn't quote unquote right with my car. 
but I also know that when they built the original cars for the sequels, uh, they were replicating the stuff then. So if it was good enough for the sequels, to me, I'm okay with it. Um, sure. You know, by the time they started doing the sequels, I mean, some of the stuff on those cars were made out of wood that they were replicating uh, surplus they weren't finding or didn't have time to find or, you know. So, I mean, I, I you know, there's some stuff on my car that is uh, resin replicas because that's what we were able to do back then when I did the car. I got the car done in 2010. It was about a three-year project. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, the first... That's- that actually seems fast because I've seen, you know, I know people that are doing like um, full size R two D twos. I know people that have done, I know people that have done um, Night Rider. They've done kit replicas, and you know they talk about it being an on. Some of them talk about it being an ongoing project because it's such a it's such a big undertaking to finish the car. So it's at the it was it's it it's went through at- a lot of versions though. I mean, first okay. I have limit I had limitations. I mean, first I was doing it where it was going to be a little bit temporary, um, you know, and then like um, you know I was trying to make vents out of thin metal that I could just do in house. Uh, I had a friend help me and he welded them up and everything, um, you know. So I mean, it's. Uh, you know, I mean, I built it, but I mean, I had people that helped, of course. I mean, it's never sure. really a lone adventure. Uh, the conduit uh, is the conduit I put on my car back then. Um, I would like slightly better conduit, but it is the conduit I made. And uh, you know what? I mean, I suffered to do it, and it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's that's my, you know, there are things, you know, that I would like to do better with my car. And the thing is with these cars, you can always rework them and you can always improve them. Um, I have, I have, I mean, I have probably two boxes of stuff that I could do to make my car more screen accurate. I just have it sitting here and I don't know, like I, I want to, you know, I can go and revisit it and I can change things out, you know, like the heating plate on the back and, Mm -hmm. you know, like the relays uh, behind the passenger seat, you know I mean? But then, at the same time, I'm like, well, that is the car I built. And, you know, it's kind of what I could do at the time. And, you know, in and of itself, it starts to show people how we were doing the cars back then, you know, in a sense, even that replicant can be a time capsule. But I think we talked about this. I think we talked about this at the show, but um, for the benefit of the listeners, was there anything that when you were building your car, that you didn't really have reference material for that you kind of took an educated guess and just kind of took your own, took your own creative license with it and tried to just get into the mindset of the the people that designed the original car. And then you tried to mimic what they were thinking and come up with something that looked good in a particular spot. Well, we, there were some, there are still some pieces of stuff on the car that we don't know what the original filmmakers actually used, but, by the you know by 2008 you know the reference pictures that that I got and spread amongst the the replica builders and everything um i mean in terms of like the the in terms of making it look the way it should and the stuff that mm-hmm. was still on the car that people had access to um to see to take photos of um really not really in terms of the details of what go on the car i mean the stuff is like nitpick stuff i mean some of the stuff is stuff that only the guys that were hands-on with the restorations you know stripping the car down would know or be able to know like exactly you know how maybe 
panels inside the car were actually cut angles, little stuff, um, you know, very, very tiny minutia that really, you know, you would be very hard pressed to actually know or ever see. Um, you know, I mean, there, there is value in knowing that stuff, but there's also a point where, you know, the, the, the reward from knowing it or doing it in your car, you know, it's going to be on your personal level. The general public's not going to really ever notice it. And I got, you know, will they appreciate it? I don't know. A lot of people like to do it so they can brag amongst themselves in the circles, but (laughs) <laughs> that's my personal opinion but it's great you know everyone can do what they want to do you know sure. um you know i was doing a when i was working on the Haggerty documentary on how they you know inducted the original a car into the national uh vehicle historic registry you know like i said there's no trophy at the end there's no one that's going to get a trophy for having the best replica they can say it all they want they can do it but it, you know at the end of the day we're all trying to do this stuff we're all fans you know, and that's my line in the documentary and I still stand by it. You know, a lot of people have money invested in these cars now. I mean, my car, um, you know, I don't have that much invested in the whole car, the car and the conversion. People would follow their seat probably if they heard what, you know, what it really was, what I have. <laughs> people are now spending, you know, 70 to a hundred grand between a car and converting it. And, uh, that's a whole different ball game than what I did when I did my car. You know, but uh, do you? But then oh, people oh. have money invested, and then they have to do events, and they have to try to get contracts and do as much as they can to make money with the car because they have to get a return on their investment. And I don't have that money drive in me for the car. That's not why I did the car. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a passion project. Yeah, well, as a kid, I sat in one of the original official cars that Universal had commissioned, and. Um, Jay Orberg did it and Jay Orberg is whose archive image archive I bought out. And, um, that's where a lot of the source stuff happened. There was a lot of other source photos that, uh, I was tracking down, but, uh, even before that, but, uh, as a kid, I sat and I knew it wasn't right. I was giving the guy a hard time about things. Uh, (laughs) later on, I, I really actually appreciate that car more because, it was an official car that Universal toured the country with, and Jay Orberg used parts of one of the, the B car that was hit by the train. So there was actually screen use parts on the car, uh, but that car was gutted uh, during the restoration of the A car to help restore the A car is how they, they marketed that. One of the things that so I, I follow and I, I imagine it's in your wheelhouse, but I don't know if you follow them. There's a YouTube channel called Night Rider Historians. Oh yeah, Joe um, and them. I know them quite, quite yeah, well. Yes, yeah. they're wonderful. They're wonderful guys. <laughs> and um, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about you know the filming of Night Rider, which is interesting because that was also Universal, yep. is that there were so many cars. There was a hero car. It was the hero car, like for any given season, there was one hero car. And then there were a lot of like, there were stunt cars and they had, after the second season, they had a special dun- uh, jump car, which was just a dune buggy with a fiberglass shell that looked like a Trans Am sitting over it. And all these cars that they had. And I noticed you mentioned that the A car was inducted into the museum. Then there's, you know, you saw the B car, which was destroyed by the train. How many cars, how many cars were used in the three movies? Was it, yeah, so was it cr- a crazy number or is it just it, a, a couple of cars? It's a total of seven. Um, wow. For the, for the first movie, they had three cars. There was the A car, which was a hero car. 
Uh, the B car was a stunt car, and um, originally they intended for it not to have much interior, uh, and then they realized that they did. And the B car and the A car um, were very, very similar. Um, you know, I mean, the B car almost had as good this same amount of detail by the time filming was done. Um, there were some <laughs> labels they didn't put in, and you know, it's just a little bit less. Uh, the B car was also their stunt car, so they put. Uh, uh, fire nozzles in the wheel wells and they had um, a manifold and they would have um, like a propane type uh, concoction that they could run and they had to have a speed thing set up so that if the car went under a certain speed they would shut off the igniters for it because they couldn't have a safety risk of the car catching fire um, oh, wow. so the scenes they were doing that so they would have practical effects on film and industrial light magic would augment them the thing is most of the time on set it did not actually work so um, I think her name was Peggy Reagan at ILM, had to animate him in. I'd, I'd have to double check my book, but I think that was her name. So, oh, wow. yeah, a lot of times um, that effect didn't work. But uh, uh, And then there was another car they called the C car, which is a car that they actually cut up on st- and they would use it on the stage so they could put the camera inside the car. Um, anytime you see like a lot of the actors in the car, that's usually that one. Um, in the second and third movie, they use that one as the, the close up, um, interior car as well. Um, in the third movie, they actually took it on location a few times, um, so they could get shots outside from Michael J. Fox's point of view in the car. Mm -hmm. Um, so that car did actually go on set, um, on location. The A car was reused in both films as the A car, as the hero car, um, after the first movie, they let the A car sit out on the uh, for uh, park guests to see at Universal Studios Hollywood, and then the car had to be refabbed even just for the movie. So for the second movie, yeah. the B car was actually kept in storage, and that one uh, was actually more uh, film ready than the A car was. So and then and they had in the second movie they made a fiberglass replica, so the whole car was fiberglass that they hung from cranes and uh, forklifts and stuff, and they would use the acorn a forklift too but with the crane they could have a small piano wire and they could float it around and everything so mm-hmm. some of the stuff was that car uh and then in the third movie they built three more cars so technically the one car that i say is seven isn't really a real car it was a replica uh five or less car um and the, the third movie they had two cars that they took uh, the delorean frames cut up and put sand rail chassis on them so they were actually like doom buggies they were volkswagen powered um, so the scenes that were out at Monument Valley where it's bouncing around the desert, those were those two cars. And then they built another car that was a dedicated stunt car for train work. We call it the Oxnard car because um, it's it's most seen up close it, uh, when Michael J. Fox is rolling before the car gets hit by the train. See, um, as we call it a stunt car because there was the car that popped the wheel on the train tracks. It was that car. It was rigged for that. Okay. So they had two cars that they would put on the train tracks, the B car and this car. And they ended up using the B car as the car they cut up and put explosives in it. And when uh, the train hits it, they trigger the explosion to hit right before the train hit it. So it's all a timing thing. So basically the car is hit. uh, The train hits suspended parts. Um, mm-hmm. when they filmmakers were watching, uh, train wreck films, uh, they noticed most of the time cars would just get pushed over and they didn't want that. They wanted the car to be destroyed. So Michael Lantieri, uh, was special effects supervisor for the second, third movies. That's what they did. They cut the whole DeLorean up 
and they filled it full of explosives. And when the stuntman cleared the way, he hits the trigger. And if you if you slow the movie down, really, uh, you know, with 4K, you can see a little puff of the actual explosion and stuff. You know, you might see a little <laughs> bit of flame. But again, in the movie theater, you don't see it really. You know. So DeLoreans, DeLoreans as a car have a reputation um, as being leaky. One, I've heard that I've heard leaky when referred to like the gullwing doors about a million times and the windows and all that, but also as not being the most wonderfully well-made cars ever made, being charitable as possible. So I'm wondering what condition, what condition was your car in when you got it and how long did it take to get it roadworthy before you started doing the conversion? Oh, I mean, I bought it was roadworthy. I bought a car that had a decent service history on it. Um, oh, okay. When I, when I bought it, I did a few things just to make it a little bit more reliable. I used the car as a daily driver for three years before I converted it. Um, oh, wow. I, I rear-ended someone by accident, and after that, when I pieced it together, that's when I decided to convert it. <laughs> they can be made reliable um mm-hmm. i mean it's uh it's a uh, the fuel injection system um it, it's a bosch system they use it in a lot of european cars porsche ferrari lotus volkswagen um many more volvo obviously because of Volvo's shared engine mercedes um the system is a fuel injection system that is uh, mechanically based um but the different variations of it have some electrical controls to help with emissions um so that's the issue is trying to get all those things to work together there's vacuum components and then electrical components uh if it was a strictly strict mechanical it would be a little bit easier to uh work and the cars will work even almost as a strictly mechanical system but there was a things for emissions that uh, hamper that so um, you have auction sensors, a frequency valve. There's all these little things that go on. And a lot of times these cars don't run well because the systems have not been maintained. And like I said, it's, mm-hmm. it's trying to get all those things to work at once that, that, that is the fun joy of it. Kind of, you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, like, um, it's just, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a system that, you know, they came up with at the time to meet the needs of the emissions requirements. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, when all of them work well, they start really well and everything. Uh, when they don't or when they get neglected, that's when you have problems. The fuel distributors do not like to be sitting. Um, the injectors don't. Uh, if you have a bad spray pattern, the injectors, the car won't won't run right. So, um, I, I've did a lot of work on it and I've worked in the auto business. So that helped. So, well, I was going to ask you that because I know a lot, there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of people who are, you know, good at making screen replicas There are a lot of people that are very good prop makers or a lot of people that know the ins and outs of making and that kind of stuff are, but I was wondering what, you know, what your mechanical background is and what, how much of the mechanical stuff on the car you did versus bringing it to someone that could service it. Like, is it something you just did over time or was it something that somebody, you had a mechanic working on it or was it a little bit of both? Well, I met, I've been managing repair shops for 18 years. I mean, right now I just work at a shop in the office two days a week. And then my real background is I was a new sports photographer and the newspaper magazine business died in the early 2000s. And I saw it and I left and my other passion was cars. So I started managing a Bosch exotic shop out in Devon where 
Uh, we were mostly Porsche and Ferrari. Um, so I would take my cars there. And I'm a Lotus Esprit guy as well, too. The Lotus and DeLorean have a shared history. I love, love the Lotus Esprit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lotus did the engineering on the DeLorean. The DeLorean is basically a heavy, slow Lotus when you think about it. Um, <laughs> I mean, on I this, like that. Yeah. On this car, every, uh, I mean, mechanically on my car, um, I think I'm the only one that's ever that's touched it since 2005 when I bought it. Uh, I mean, when I blew it, when the clutch failed on the car, when we we're filming a Retrocon commercial, and if you find the one where the Baroness steals the DeLorean, when it goes away, you'll see this little puff, and that was the last remains of the clutch. And luckily, it was going downhill, so I got out of the frame. <laughs> um, oh shoot, that thing fell. Oh man. Um, so, uh, <laughs> oh, no, I got to get the shadow back or the I knocked that there. Sorry, there we go. Um, okay. So, um, I mean, the clutch, I mean, I had it at the, another shop I was at. I was at one shop and then a BMW-specific shop for a while. So I had it towed there. And, I mean, the one mechanic helped me do some stuff on it. But, you know, he helped me take it apart, and then I put it all back together. But uh, um, That's so great. I, I, I love I, I the car. I, I, I love the car. I mean, it was the first thing I said when I met you is how much I love the car and how beautiful it was and how much I appreciated the work you put into it. But then seeing other people looking at the car and having the same reaction, that's got to be like the greatest feeling in the world. Like they, they build. And, you know, when, when I got my tickets for RetroCon, you know, in the, in the, on the mailing list, they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to have an A-team van. We're going to have a General Lee. We're going to have a DeLorean. And I was like, that's awesome. Like I knew it was going to, I knew they were going to look good, but just the warm fuzzies of seeing that car there and then seeing like all the people reacting the same way and pointing and like really looking close at all the detail work. That's got to be like the greatest feeling in the world for you because you have all these people constantly appreciating the work you did on this car. Yeah. I mean, it, it's neat. It's neat to, to, have other people enjoy what I enjoy or what attracted me to the car. Um, you know, I mean, I put behind me, there's a sign there. So at least there was something DeLorean in there. Uh, that was from 2015 at the AACA museum up in Hershey. Uh, I've had the car up there and did a display and curated display for back to the future for the 30th anniversary of the movie. Uh, so I had my car and I had some original, uh, Ron Cobb blueprints and, uh, production notes and stuff up there and some original props and collectibles. Uh, this past uh, summer, my car was up at the Boyertown uh, Historic Vehicle Museum all summer. And I actually put um, some of my original props that I've never put out on public on display there um, and a lot of original notes and stuff. And, you know, the museum, they got attention with Channel 6 and they had a very good response because of it. So that helped them out. But the interesting story is in 2015, I had my car at the museum and I had it already scheduled. It was supposed to stay there until future day on October 21st, but I had RetroCon. I've been, I've done every RetroCon except for one, um, you know, the one after the first one after COVID, um, I wasn't really feeling it. And I was kind of, it was September and usually I get bad allergies and I always get like sick around there. And that year I just wasn't, I didn't feel like risking it and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, um, when in 2015, um, you know, I, there was someone that rents cars and they like the broker time machine replicas. And there was a gig and I think it was up in New York and it might've been a really big gig. And, uh, you know, I mean, they told me it was like $15,000 and I said, well, my car's at the museum. They're like, well, you should do this event. It's this money and this and that. I said, well, I'm like, 
you know, I've told the museum they would have the car there. I'm not going to pull it in and out another mm-hmm. time, especially since it was going to be on future day. And the whole thing was, is my car was going to be there for future day for them, you know, right? because they were doing stuff with the car when Pepsi was sponsoring stuff with the museum. And, you know, they had the TV station coming out and they were doing, you know, I had my obligation with them. And this person said to me, well, you know, how much is the museum paying you? And I'm like, they're not paying me anything. He's like, so wait, you have your car at the museum and you're not making any money. I said, no, actually I lose money because I'm trailering the car up there and running a truck and trailer. <laughs> I'm like, but the fact that, and then he's like, well, I guess you just don't care about money. I do care about money. I care about making money at my job. And that's what it is. The cars to me are my hobby. And right. that, that's, that's how I've always been about it. Um, you know, like the Blairtown museum, they were selling my book um, you know, and that's, that's the only little bit of money that I did. And I even gave them wholesale pricing. So like over 50% of each book, the money was going to the museum. Uh, it's a great museum and I wanted to help them out and everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm not, I just, I don't, I don't go at it going after having to get the money or the gigs or the attention, you know, um, you know, I mean, it's everyone has a place in the hobby and everyone's doing what they do. And mine is this is a car I built. And if people can enjoy it, great. Um, I mean, at RetroCon, I mean, one of the most uh, uh, satisfying moments as a, a time machine builder was and it's kind of ironic, but being a photographer too, being able to help someone see the car who's blind. Um Wow. It, was, it was it was very um, sombering. Uh, this gentleman came up with his father at this past retrocon, and he asked if his kid could touch the car. A lot of people want to touch the car because they're fascinated that the car is made out of sure. stainless. I, I could get rich charging people just to touch the car. You know, yeah. <laughs> they, 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 it's like they never felt stainless before on their on their stove or their sink or their kitchen. The fact that it's a car, it's something right. that makes them all different. But anyway, so he says, and I get it because a lot of people ask that they can touch the car. Uh, and then I look over and I saw he had the stick uh, and um, that, you know, I was like, oh, he might be blind. So, um, so then I went to the father and I was very delicate and not being very loud. But I'm like, can he see anything? You know, I, I, I didn't know how to handle the situation exactly. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you can ask him direct. So I asked him, um, the son, and he was already touching the fender and stuff. And uh, I said, um, can you see any shapes or shades and stuff? Because some people can. At the one BMW shop I managed, there was a guy who was blind. He could just see kind of shapes and he was a mechanic and he would actually fix cars. And it turns out wow. he could do stuff that other uh, mechanics couldn't because mechanics, a lot of times they'll see something that's hard and they put in their head. It's hard. There was stuff he could do mm-hmm. like pull transmissions out of cars that everyone else would complain about, but because he was blind and he was feeling stuff, I, um, it, it was, it's incredible. Um, he was at that shop before I was there. I never got to work with him, but I know for a fact that this guy did do it because I heard it from four other people that worked at the, the place before me. So, I mean, it's, so you know, they, they might not, someone might not be able to see, but they're aware or they might be able to sense stuff that I can't. So, um, so I asked him if he had, you know, heard back to the future, if he knew the movie and he did. So, um, the first thing I did, as I said, I, I said to him, I said, I don't know if you know this about DeLoreans or not, but one of the big things that makes them so interesting is that the doors 
don't move the normal way. Um, and -hmm. again, I, I'm, I'm going to say up, I'm going to say this and that. And I, I don't know, like, even as I'm describing stuff, (laughs) like if you can, like, it's, it's so we take for granted, simple stuff. Like the doors go up. Yeah. Is he going to know what up means that way? I think so. But so, so what I did is I said, if you, I said, just have trust in me. I said, but I want you to put your hand on the door and just notice what the door does that the door doesn't do, doesn't do this. It comes up at an angle. Uh-huh. So when I did that, his eyes went open, you know, his eyebrows went real big and then he could feel that. <laughs> then he's feeling the door above him. So then I'm like, I really realized he was, you know, really getting into it. And I wanted him to experience something with Back to the Future or the time machine. As you know, seeing my car, the back deck has a lot of stuff on it. And mm-hmm. I'm sure he would have a, a blast feeling all the different stuff. But sure. that's not the place to be just feeling around, not knowing. There's a lot of sharp edges on there. And I did yeah. not want him to get hurt. So I, I then thought, what could I do? You know, it sounded like I got the sense from the father that he wasn't going to sit in the car at all and try to get in and out of the car. Um, so then I realized that, like the time circuit handle uh, on my car, it pops on and off and I've left it that way uh, because mm-hmm. people knock when, when it's fixed, people break it. Actually, the first retrocon was the first thing I ever did with the car. The first person that sat in it broke the switch. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Oh man. That's how it first started. Well, anyway, I took the handle off and I told I I talked to him about it. I said, you know, when Doc Brown first talks to Marty about the time machine, he turns the time circuits on and it makes beep 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 all these noises and everything, and he was nodding his head. And he said, Yes. And I said, Well, I said it's a different type of handle. It's uh and I held it at the angle. I said, put your hand on it, and when Doc turns it on, it does this. And I said, and part of the story, how Mario goes in accidental in time is it sits here and the gear shift is here. And I said, if you take your hand and hit it, this is why in the story it happens. And he just kept feeling the handle and stuff. And uh, I could just see just how happy he was and the father too. <laughs> um, but it was just really, uh, it was, that's probably the most uh, like emotional moment I've ever had with the car with someone else, you know, um, you know, and, and, you know, and again, I'm a photographer and I use my eyes and I want people to see things. Um, there's another gentleman, Marty Miller. Uh, he is a DeLorean owner as well, but he's very active in the Star Wars world. And he has an R2-D2 replica. Uh, he was the one walking around with Chewbacca at RetroCon and he had R2. Oh, that was him? Okay. Him. Yeah. yeah, I saw that. So it turns Seven out, something feet tall. It was pretty damn impressive. <laughs> yeah, he has a pretty neat setup for that. Um but uh, he's a photographer as well. He's a wedding photographer, and he had someone who was uh, blind as well, and he was doing the same thing with the R2-D2, and I didn't know that. It was someone, someone one of my friends told me after the fact, so I thought it was really kind of interesting that here we're both photographers, and we're both trying to, you know... Um, you know, help people still see, even though they can't see. Sorry, I was fixing that there. No problem. I think and one I'm of the things acid might whine every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things, one of the things I noticed about about your car, as opposed to the General Lee and the A Team van, and this is not a knock on them in any way, but it was the difference in how you presented the car versus how they presented theirs. The General Lee and the and the A Team van were both roped off and very tightly controlled as to who could go look at it, and they were being watched like a hawk. And your DeLorean, I know you were watching it because I saw you there, but it wasn't like 
I didn't get the impression that you were hawkishly watching every person, like waiting to pounce on them just in case they got too close to your car. I'm sorry, so, that light thing again. <laughs> oh, no problem. Um, I, I think it kind of encouraged people because it's interesting that you talked about a blind person wanting to touch the car, you know, needing to touch the car to kind of, you know, quote, visualize it. And your car really invited somebody to actually do that and take a closer look at it. Whereas the other ones were kind of like, these are for you to look at from a distance unless you pay us and then you can come up close and look at it. Um, I mean, I, I do try to, well, I actually, I enclose the car quite a bit, especially because the rear deck. I'm sorry about these dogs. Are, are they too no, loud I'm, on your microphone or do you hear just can, a little? I can hear them, buddy. You know, it's not the All end right. of the world. <laughs> I know my wife will be feeding them shortly, but it's not dinner time yet. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I do watch a lot of what's going on. And, um, you know, I charge people if they want to sit in the car. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, I'm covering my trailer expenses. Of um, course. You know, and also wear and tear in the cars. I mean, things do break. I've had turn signal switches break I, because of people getting in and out of the cars. Um, I've had people break uh, some of the lights on the top, you know, and it's it's frustrating, but it is what it is. But, uh, um, you know, I mean, I'm very I'm very guarded about the back of the car because of, of the course. sharp vents. I don't want people back there unless they're, you know, supervised. Um you know, the, the thing is, is I let people get pictures next to the car. Uh, I don't charge them if they want to do that. If they want to sit in the car, they can they can sit in the car. And if it's a group of people together, I'll usually try to bunch them up as, as one thing. Um, mm -hmm. The A-Team van, that was the first event he ever did. And um, he bought the car, I'm, I'm sorry, the van from Tony, uh, who runs RetroCon. That was Tony's A-Team van. Oh, wow. And this was a, <laughs> a neighbor in the neighborhood got it. So that was his first event. He wasn't really... Um, used to that sort of thing. And with the general Lee, um, part of that also is you have to remember with the stars and everything, it had to be that way because they're doing photo ops with the stars and the car. And right. then, uh, and then, you know, Tom did do it. He fleece did do, um, I'm hoping I pronounce his name right. The guy with the general Lee, um, you know, I mean, he did a nice display. I mean, he had the boars nest. Sure and he, he went all out in it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I, I think if, if he's had that car at RetroCon before outside and he was very accessible with stuff and I've been at other conventions with him and he's very accessible. Um, the factor is though, is you had the official, uh, group photos with the stars for Dukes of Hazzard. That was a big deal. Um, sure. So, I mean, they had to have it kind of be that way more. Uh, if you were at, um, you know, like I was with him at Amazicon very years and years ago, and, um, you know, I mean, his car was just sitting there. There was no ropes or anything around it, you know. You would just wow, okay, pay gotcha. to open the door and you get in. So uh, I, I, I would have to say I think a lot of that mindset would be because of, of that um, – that difference there. And um, the guys at the Jurassic Park Jeep, he always has his roped off uh, because he has a lot of little props and stuff around it and everything. Um, you know, I mean, unfortunately, you know, if you don't do it, people sometimes will take advantage, you know? Yeah. So um, that's I, why, if you notice too, most of the time, if uh, I, that's why the doors stay closed more. Sure. sure. I used to leave the doors open so people could see in it, but people decide, Oh, I just want to jump in the car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, that's one of the perks if someone pays, then to sit in the car, then they can also get to be, you know, see everything and get in it. Uh, but that's also one of the things that, you know, I do have to put that little roadblock up because when the doors open, people want to just jump in the car. Um, 
one of my one of my favorite things that I saw um, after the show, and I had when you and I became friends on Facebook, um, was seeing the celebrities. So I saw Greg Evigan was over by the car. I saw Tom Schneider was. I think he took a picture in the car. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, uh, Schneider but, stood next to the car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You had like everybody that was at the show that was sitting at the autograph tables at some point was over there near your car, um, which was, that I don't was know pretty about cool. Everyone. I, I just had, uh, actually the only one was John with my car. Uh-oh. I did uh, with John. I mean, unless other people did and took photos, I didn't see it. I oh, so the know. photos you took might've just been, okay. So yeah, it was just Schneider. Took- yeah. Um, gotcha. he was there across from us and everything. And, uh, you know, we were hoping to get like Tom Wopat and maybe Catherine, but they were really, you know, busy. And, and they were busy. <laughs> uh, and John was very busy too. I mean, he's a, yeah. he was a workhorse with everyone there. Uh, very nice, sincere fellow and everything. So, um, you know, but I mean, it's it's neat sometimes at RetroCon to get the get the stars to get next to it. Last year, Claudia Wells, who was Jennifer in Back to the Future One, was there. Oh, and she wow. had it with the car. Um, I was going to ask that. Has anyone from the cast or the original or either any of the original movies, have they seen the car and just uh, their feedback? Claudia Wells. And then uh, several years ago at RetroCon, we had Don Fully Love who played Goldie Wilson. So those are the only two that, that have seen the car in person okay. or anything. Yeah. Cool. Are you getting, are you getting requests from around the country for the car or is it mostly just like Northeast type shows? I get some northeast stuff but i really don't go after it there's so many people that do and there's like agents that broker car you know there's like i don't even remember the exact names like delorean rental or something delorean time machine rentals or something oh, you know wow. i mean there, there are people that like now <laughs> have agents brokering the stuff for them or run a website and then they get a, a fee off of it and all that um i mean with the truck and trailer issues and i haven't invested in my own truck and trailer for it I really, you know, I really don't go after stuff. If people want to come out, out to me and ask me to do something, I'll consider it. But if it's like a, if it's a convention or some event that people are charging people to go to, I, I ask that they cover my expenses, the truck and trailer. And the expenses for like RetroCon is usually, it used to be like a little under 300. Now with the way cost of stuff has gone up, it's like, it was like 450 just to get the car there and back. So I hadn't um, even, you know, it's funny you saying this because I hadn't even thought of that because obviously, you know, it's a car. And in my head, it's like, well, it's, it's a car. You some just people take drive it there, them. I mean, but, uh, a friend of mine uh, in Malvern has a DeLorean replica who covered me um, uh, in 21. You know, I mean, he drives his on the streets and stuff. And um, I have, you know, I mean, if I got antique tags on it legally, I could. But, um, you know, to me, that is opening yourself up to, you know, huge liabilities terry and oliver i mean he drives his car all over the place i mean he drives it state <laughs> to state um you know but i also know that he um is a professional you know prop builder and everything mm-hmm. and um i mean i've seen some replica cars and um bits and pieces on them aren't really attached and all you need is that thing to go off and hit, oh, wow. uh, you know you hit someone else's car yeah and most people don't really I think are aware of like the different type of insurances involved. You know, you, it's one thing, you know, you have a regular vehicle, but you have it modified and you're using it to make money for events and your rep, you know, like I, I feel like a lot of people are playing uh, with fire a little bit there. I mean, my wife is in insurance, so it's in my mindset, um, you know, <laughs> but I mean, just that's a good, that's a good thing to have in tra- your back pocket. Trailering, trailering the car 
it's nerve wracking enough as it is because people come up next to you in the blind right. spots and they're taking photos and they just sit there. So when you're driving the car on the street, it's worse. I mean, I have driven my car in my neighborhood a little bit. Sometimes just mm-hmm. to stretch its, you know, stretch sure, its you wings and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get it. It's neat. A lot of people do drive them, but I'll tell you, way the law, the way the lawsuits are and technicalities and you know, you got a replica thing that you put in your car and it flies off, then, you know, who's liable for all that stuff? I don't want to find out, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, Graham, when it's on the truck and trailer, I mean, I, you know, it's still going through the air and stuff and I still have the risk of something coming off, I guess I have this, but I mean, you know, I feel like it's, uh, I don't probably know. If, tra- if it's on the trailer, I'm not actually driving it. I'm hauling it, you know, but, right. uh, you know, I mean, we all have risk and all that stuff. I just, I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I'm not interested in the nerves of driving it to events and stuff. I mean, I get nerved enough just trailering it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, so we have about, we have about 15 minutes left in the time that I said that we were going to have you. So um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your book because you have a book and uh, the way I understand it, and I could be wrong, but the book is about your build specifically right it's, no it's, little... it's it's all about uh it's all about the the building of the original cars by the filmmakers oh wow okay it, it has okay. nothing i mean there's maybe two mentions in there about my car and i have a few mentions of uh, some of the replica cars but that have some important history with the franchise but uh no that's all about the filmmakers that's that's my real interest in all this stuff is documenting what those guys did, how they did it and where it came from. You know, um, I mean, my, my interest in photography came out of my interest in filmmaking, which was from my interest in back to the future. Uh, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with comic books. I love comic books and I used to love to draw. Excuse me. I always wanted to be like a comic book artist. And I used to draw, um, football and baseball drawings. I used to draw pictures where, a guy would be sliding into the base and his cleat would be touching the base, but then the ball would be in the guy's glove. And it was all these ball on the fingertip stuff, which is the exact stuff I do in my photography. Um, the thing is, your photography, you... by the way, and, and I'm not trying to cut you off and I'm sorry, but your <laughs> no, photography, good... I had no idea about this about you until we were friends on Facebook. Your mm-hmm. photography is exceptional. Oh, I know hearing that from hearing that from a non-professional photographer, I'm sure has about as much meaning as a glass of water, but it really is your photography is exceptional. Like it's you capture you capture action so beautifully. There was one shot where you were doing a chasing shot of you. I think it was your car, and you had the um you had basically a dolly shot of your car with the background in motion and your oh, car. Oh no, that, that still. was a, that was Joe Butch actually driving his car away from the shop I managed. Okay. Yeah. It looks so <laughs> like I know that I know how hard because I, I do do photography also. I mean, I'm not at the level you're at, but I understand the difficulty in capturing the stuff that you capture. Your photography is amazing. It's oh, thank really, you. you're one of the it, few people who I don't follow for because it's photography of something specific I want to see. I just enjoy your photography. I appreciate it. I, it, I mean, the, the, what happened with was at the age of 10, I started to think I wasn't good enough to be a, a comic book artist at the age of 10. Right. I'm already deciding this. Oh, you're quite the realist. And, and, then, <laughs> and then, um, back to the future part two was announced and I was obsessed with back to the future. 
uh, I write in my book and my introduction about how I got introduced to it and everything. But um, the thing is, is the Channel 29 Fox had a contest where you can win tickets to the premiere of Back to the Future in Philadelphia. You got to see it two days early. And I sent nice. a postcard and the next day my name was picked. I don't know how it got there so fast. I guess it was meant to be. And my wow. mom didn't want me to. Uh, stop my homework to watch to see if I won. So she told me I could record it. She's like, there's no way you won. She's like, it went out in the mail yesterday and the mail didn't get picked up till late, like 5.30, which is late for us. And I'm like, well, mom, what if I won? So she said I could tape it, which is probably the best thing ever because I did win and I have on tape my name going on the screen as a winner. So, you know, you're 10 years old, you're with your dad going down the center city of Philadelphia Monday on a school night. There's about five to seven stock DeLoreans parked out front in center city of Philadelphia. It was the Boyd Theater. It's an Art Deco theater. It's gone now. But it was a it was a grand theater, Art Deco, beautiful staircase, beautiful architecture. Um, they're giving out freebies. They're giving out uh, uh, movie posters and pizza cups and buttons and pins and stickers and stuff. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm a comic book collector and a toy guy and my dad's collectors and my uncle's a toy collector and, and my mom collects antiques. So we're collecting family. So I'm getting as much as I can. And, um, you know, and then you got the DeLoreans out there and some of them, uh, you know, weren't like perfect and clean, which, um, you know, at 10 years old, I'm like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, now I'm older. I'm like, I respect those guys more because they were driving their car. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, you go into the movie theater and my dad was talking to this uh, couple people and I wasn't paying much attention. So we go in the movie theater and it was such a great experience. The It was the first time I was in a theater with a balcony um, other than when we would have like movie day at the high school auditorium. Yeah, I'm sorry, elementary school auditorium. Um you know, so at first I'm like, what's going on here? It's on a stage and there's a balcony. And then it turns out Tom Wilson's family was there because Tom Wilson's from the area. He's a 1979 oh, wow. graduate of Radnor. And uh, so Tom Wilson's family was who my dad was talking to. So they said that Tom Wilson's family was there, but Tom Wilson couldn't be there because of he was working on another movie, which was Back to the Future Part 3. Back which, to the Future 3. Which yeah. I knew because the novel came out before the movie and I read the novel before I saw the movie. I, I'm one of these. I, I love spoilers. I love finding out oh. as much as I can before. <laughs> Not me. Are, I got, that's fine. I just, mm -hmm. I, my uncle Ron and I were the same way with that stuff. You know, we would find, you know, you go to a convention, you could find an early script for Batman returns before Batman returns was out. You know, we, you know, we just want to find out as much as we could about it. You know, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people get, feel like they get ruined with spoilers and you know, I guess it is, but <laughs> The thing is, is I, the thing is, is what happens is I read the novel and I saw the behind the scenes making of the movie and in my head, all the stuff was going around. So I knew people made movies, but what it was, was that moment when Tom Wilson's family shared when his name, when he showed up on screen. And then when his name was on the screen at 10 years old, I'm like, wait a minute, people, someone from around here made this movie. And that <laughs> made me want to become a filmmaker. And I thought to do film, I should have photography. So I joined the school newspaper and I said, I want to do photos. And I automatically asked for sports because sports was the closest thing I could ever do to making photos of action. That is like my comic book drawings. That's the only thing like this afternoon, I was shooting Westchester university soccer and you know, the people mm -hmm. were in the air and you know that's the closest thing sports photography is to doing the superhero stuff I drew as a kid. 
And what happened was the photography, I just picked up and ran with it. And, um, you know, and I ended up becoming more of a still guy than a filmmaker because, as I say, and I say it to everyone, is I work with the 2D image of, a, of the draw of the comic book artist. You know, it's a plain 2D image, but I'm working with the tools and methods of a filmmaker, lenses, uh, back then film stock, uh, lighting, all that equipment that the filmmaker uses. So that's why it's the mer- perfect marriage for me. And I did it for a number of years and I was, you know, pretty successful with it. Um, I worked with major magazines. I worked with major league baseball team. I that used to cover the Eagles and the Phillies for uh, one of the major dailies in Philadelphia for a number of years. And I kept seeing that, yeah, I was making more money each year, but I was also seeing that the money that was being made, the effort to get it was going away. And I was also seeing the expense of the digital equipment versus return on that equipment. So um, yeah. I've always had a business mindset about that sort of thing. So I left it in 2005. I really didn't pick up the camera much for the last 18 years. I would do select assignments for people. Um, if people reached out for me, you know, if, uh, you know, like I did this one magazine shoot for this uh, local author who, um, you know, I took photos when he was coaching one of the high school teams around here. In those 18 years, though, of not shooting much, you know, I mean, I, you know, you probably you look at my pictures now, you probably are like, what? You didn't do this for 18 years. But um, what it was is the Back to Future stuff um, was always my interest, too. So with Back to Future dot com, who which was originally a fan club back in the day. Well, um, you know, I would do and start doing articles, interviews for him. So you see my background from being an actual newspapers is I approach this stuff as an actual journalist. You know, I follow the mm-hmm. whole rules that we do as real journalists should do, which unfortunately most of what passes in journalism these days would never pass muster with any of my editors 20 years ago. But that's a whole different Amen. story. Amen to that. <laughs> Everything is opinion now. And the thing mm-hmm. is, is, and part of the reason why I left is the consolidation, you know, mm-hmm. in that whole industry, you know, uh, uh, back, you know, back when I was working newspapers, you know, just in local communities, you could have three or four different local papers owned by different groups. Next thing you know, all of them are bought by one corporation. That corporation sells it. Next thing you know, equity funds are running these newspapers and media conglomerates, and they don't really care about running yeah, and media. the wall. <laughs> and the wall between the wall between news opinion and advertising just kind of fell. See, it's yeah, just completely it, gone. It's the the there's a whole um you know in school they teach you remember home go home watch the news report yeah. on it. Well, mm-hmm. the thing is, is you get someone opinionated, you put them on TV, they dress them up the same way, you put banner headlines underneath it. It looks like news, but if you dissect it, a lot of it's opinion. And, you know, if you look at all the different sides, which, you know, which is funny because all these different sides are all owned by the same corporate interest at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's just, it's Most sad. Part. It's sad. But, uh, but, uh, so I left that world, uh, you know, but, um, but no, but with back to the future.com, I was doing the, these interviews with the people that worked on the, the movies. Uh, I started with Andrew Probert, who was one of the designers. Uh, he also designed Airwolf, the, I uh, co-designed the enterprise for next generation. And uh, then one interview I'd roll into another interview and those interviews became the crux of my book. Um, and that's, that's how that was uh, grew. So my involvement with back to future.com for all those years, kept my feet wet with like a journalism uh, interest. And I was still able mm-hmm. to use that talent. Um, 
and then you know it's just uh managing shots for years and years uh i started to um, take some pictures again just of cars at work and then i found a niche doing that stuff so a lot of my work now is doing automotive photography for dealers that are selling you know high-end cars and stuff i mean today i was shooting this morning an early uh 60s cadillac uh, eldorado convertible big fins oh, you God. know you know i mean yesterday i was shooting a a G-Wagon, a Porsche 968, a Mercedes SL. I mean, it's uh, – oh, dang, I'm sorry about that. I should have put gaffer's tape on that. I'm just going to put the mask <laughs> over it. Like I said, I do photography and look at this quality, but I didn't, I didn't, do film. I didn't end up doing film or video, you know. <laughs> but, uh, no, so that's, all good, my that's how the, the book I self-published, um, mm-hmm. you know, and – uh, yeah, I did it through Amazon, and, um, you know, I did have a copy editor, although I still find some stuff, and my wife pointed out something to me, and I'm like, uh, you know, but it, Amazon does allow you to fix small stuff, so mm-hmm. the book out there now is a lot better than the very, very first one I put out. <laughs> it's the upside just, it's on it's, demand, right? <laughs> yeah, it's little spelling mistakes or a couple little grammar things, um, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a certain point where I just kind of had to, like, finally let it go, and it it is what it is. I mean, you know, there's a lot of content in there. The source interviews are in there. You know, I, I did a narration from the point of view of, you know, the the making of the movies and then interwove it with the creation of the car and then interwove the narration from the movie to the car to justify why they were doing certain things. So, um, you know, it was it was fun. It that took me years to do originally i wanted to do a book about the creation of the first movie and really Mm -hmm. dig into that and then um there was an author uh case and gains i think his name is how you pronounce his name he wrote a book where we're going we don't need roads and uh he contacted me as a research um resource and as we were talking the more i realized he actually had a paid publisher and an actual signed deal um, so as I was talking to him, I started to realize that we were going down the same route. And, um, mm-hmm. so then I decided I wanted to do one that was more, uh, centered on the DeLorean. And, um, for a little while I was talking with Joe Walzer, uh, who was the head of the A-team, uh, A-car, A-team, <laughs> A-car restoration. <laughs> uh, and he wanted to do a DeLorean book and he was going to focus on, the restoration part of it, I was going to have the guts of the history of the, of the movie car itself. Uh, and then he got the book deal with Bob Gale. And then that thing turned into something different. That was that doc Brown workshop manual. Uh, but that's more like a, a fictionalized workshop manual that tries to um, explain how the time machine is in, in, in the narrative of the universe of back to the future. And it kind was, of like the Star Trek service manual that I have. I think it's exactly. This one, they did a Hayes manual. Yeah. Chilton's another. Hayes, that's it. Hayes, yeah. yeah. So I got well, one, I have one last start. question for you. I have yeah. one last question for you that I definitely, I wanted to ask you because I know, I kind of know what my answer is, but I was kind of curious to know what your answer is as a back to the future super fan. What is it about this movie to you, in your mind, that makes it stick around? Because there are people who right now, there are certain movies and certain TV series that have stuck around 
and stood the test of time better than others. There have been some that, you know, I remember from my childhood, but I don't, you know, nobody talks about them, but everyone loves Back to the Future. Everyone loves Ghostbusters. Everyone loves Dukes of Hazzard, Knight Rider. You know, there's certain shows that have really stood the test of time. And as far as movies go, Back to the Future has really, really stood the test of time. What has made this obvious, like, 1980s movie, because it is a very 80s movie, but what has made this movie so timeless in your opinion? So, I mean, the, I mean, I, I, I might give you a couple different parts of an answer. I uh, love it. But I think the first thing is what makes it work is so well is it's, it's all about, again, different generations. So, mm-hmm. you know, and Bob Gale talks about this, the co-creator writer of back to the future is that, uh, you know, in the in, when Back to the Future came out, the teenagers were reacting to Marty, but the parents were reacting to the stuff from the fifties. See, so now, mm-hmm. now the thing is, is the jokes. When we grew up, hey, a rerun. What's that? What's funny is the generation now they don't know what a rerun is. Right. It's a circle of all these things that change, and all this stuff changes, but the crux of human interactions stays the same. You know what I mean? So the interest of love and, you know, desires and dreams and all that, those things are such human um, elements that those stay the same throughout the time. Right. So mm-hmm. Robin, please be quiet. We're finishing up. <laughs> We're almost done. We're almost Hang done. in there. I promise Robin. <laughs> <laughs> you know so like you know that, that, that i think that is what what makes it so timeless and it's a really good story and the movie was done really well the thing that yeah. i'm most fascinated about and you know i do go into a lot about the stolt stuff in my book because i've interviewed people that were that edited the stolt stuff i mean he was in the wow. you know editing room and you know the thing is he was very serious and very uh he was method acting, and he was not the Marty that we know. Um, I really, Isn't that wonder, wild? yeah, it, I really do wonder if they didn't get the magic of Michael J. Fox, if Back to the Future would have been another Buckaroo. Um, you know, like if it would have really caught the fever as much as it did. Um, the lightning in the bottle. I, I mean, you, Marty needs to be the right person and i there's no one else better for that than michael j fox i mean it's it's clear as day that was a role destined for him and i'm glad it all eventually worked out because i think if stoltz cut was you know the stoltz version was what was put out um it would have been it just another 80s film it would have been a cult thing you know i've actually thought it would be fun to make a, a fan documentary from the point of view that you have Eric Stoltz going around with like DeLorean time machines at like a retro con. And, and it's just this offshoot thing. It's this funky little thing. And then, you know, you have him narrating and it goes into the back and then that's how you could work into like, you know, actually like showing people the Stoltz stuff. Uh, Universal does still have that stuff. Uh, they, they made a 45 minute cut of it that they showed to the heads of the of Universal and the production heads to say, look, this isn't working. People think it's like a full cut film, but it wasn't. I mean, it's the crux of what they filmed. Um, you know what I mean? But uh, uh, it, um, you know, I just I wonder about that. What if? And that's the thing, too. The Back to the Future touches the what if, you mm-hmm. know, time travel. What if this? What if that? You know, what if? 
you know, what if your, you know, your dad didn't get hit by the car and now you don't exist, you know? Right. Um, there's a lot of subtle stuff in that film too. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, everyone's I, think always- it's the first, I think it's the first movie that made people really think about time travel instead of just as a mechanism to, to take a modern piece and go back and do something as a period piece where, you know, there are consequences in the future for what happens in the past. I can't think of a movie that had time travel where, and I could be completely wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure in my lifetime, the first movie that really made you think like, oh, if you change something in the past, it isn't just like, then you just go back to where you were in the, in the present. It actually does change a whole bunch of stuff. Like everything could break. Well, uh, the filmmakers acknowledge, and, and I would agree is if you watch it's a wonderful life, they, they like Bob Gale and them, they consider like, it's a wonderful life, almost like a time travel film. Cause when you think about it, remember, uh, you know, he was never born. Gosh, it's been so long since I've seen it. It's a wonderful life. It's a great movie, but it goes into the whole thing, like, uh, you know, a whole different existence. So that that theme has been touched before. But like you said, not in our generation. It was right. Right. But I mean, if you watch like It's a Wonderful Life and compare it to the narrative breakdown of what happened in Back to the Future Part Two, when Biff has, you know, the Bifferific version of 1985a and he controls everything you know that's kind of like the potterville of of the uh you know it's a wonderful life so um that you know i mean the filmmakers have acknowledged that that it's a wonderful life did have an effect on them um so again that's again if i think if a movie touches on some human aspect that is timeless then it works it's why you know people still like shakespeare all these years you know it's why Mm -hmm. classical you know, stories. I mean, I mean, even like Sherlock Holmes is something that keeps going on. And, you know, uh, you know, even certain comic books and stuff. I mean, growing up, not having comic book movies. Now there's comic book movies everywhere. But, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, but it's, you know, there is still these traits that just continue through. And I think the Back to the Future captured it. The other thing, too, is I think part of why it was so great that we got to experience the stuff we did when we did is there was a study that was going on. And when I interviewed Michael Fink, who was the original construction coordinator for the DeLorean time machine, um, he and I have talked about this found aesthetic where they would repurpose stuff to make it look like something else. Star Wars touched on it. Ridley Scott was famous for it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and, and Michael Fink worked with Ridley Scott on Blade Runner. You know, the idea that, you can take like found items and repurpose them as something else. And yeah. when it's on the magic again, and then that goes back to the magic of what's on screen, you know, like it fascinates me that, you know, Michael Fink is ba- was the brainchild. It was the creator of the flux capacitor as we know it. Um, you know, they were having trouble figuring it out. Andrew Probert couldn't figure it out. He had an idea where it would be on the ceiling. Ron Cobb, who was the original illustrator, who was really designated to design the DeLorean, he had different ideas, even what was on the outside the roof. When I interviewed him, he said it was one of those things. It was a last minute thing. He just could never get a handle on it. Um, in my research, I found that Mike Fink bought the high voltage relays that they use as the guts of the time of the flux capacitor. Uh, and I did my interview with Michael and, uh, it was the first back to the future interview I had ever done. And he said that, you know, when they were having a meeting in the art department, um, 
you know, talking about the flux capacitor, he had this, uh, he knew these high voltage relays and in his head, he just could see how otherworldly he could make it. Um, mm-hmm. But like it could work. So, I mean, the flux capacitor, all it is, is an enclosure. They took these high voltage glass tube relays with their little brass mounts. They put them in and they put little lights underneath them, chaser lights, and that's it. It's one of the most iconic props ever made. And it's super super neat. Yeah. But, but, you know, but he's thinking aesthetically how it, you know, looking at it on screen, how it could, um, again, look like something that could be something else. And he, in his Mm -hmm. head could see the light going through the high voltage relays. So, uh, one of the neat things I did with my replica, I took a picture with a macro lens inside the flux capacitor and I lit it with the lights in the flux capacitor. And uh, I actually sent it to him. I said, see, this is that otherworldly stuff you're talking about. And he really liked that. So it was neat that I took <laughs> a picture and got to share it with him and he responded. But, uh, um, you know, that that's the stuff I enjoy is getting to have moments with people, whether it's the people that work on the films or fans like you that get mm-hmm. to enjoy stuff and everything. But, uh, but yeah, I think that Back to the Future, it's just it's a it's just a total cycle of, you know, different time frames. What ifs. And again, at the end of the day, there's a, a human emotion, a human story that's still there. And that's what gravitates. Ghostbusters has the same aesthetic, yep. you know, um, you know, I mean, the Knight Rider, they were, you know, Knight Rider is a, a tech aesthetic, uh, you know, more high tech. But even that, I mean, the Knight Rider car, Michael Chavay, the designer of the kit, is the was the final construction coordinator on the DeLorean time machine. So, you know, like Michael and yeah, he did a lot. Of, he did a lot of Hollywood. He did a lot of Hollywood cars. He was known for for knocking out Hollywood cars. He did a bunch. I know his most famous was the Knight Rider car and the the DeLorean. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. just interesting. Like Andrew Probert, you know, he was from he did Battlestar Galactic too. Andrew was mm-hmm. hired to do storyboards, and he and he couldn't pass up the chance to design the DeLorean because he needed something in the storyboards. You know, but his stuff is very high tech. It doesn't look like Doc Brown built it at home at all. And he knew right. Ron Cobb was going to come and design the car. And he was, he, as he says in interviews, he was a little bummed, but he wouldn't want anyone else to do it. But Ron was only on for a few weeks. So then Andrew, they had Andrew take back over. And Ron took what, uh, I'm sorry, Andrew took what Ron did and polished it out. So like Andrew added the second vent at the request of like Spielberg and Zemeckis. And, and, and Andrew flushed out the conduit bands around the car. So, you know, the final design sketches are Andrew's and uh, they're very close to the final car. But that's that creative process that I found so fascinating. I mean, the time machine wouldn't be what it would be unless Ron Cobb did his designs, which are very homemade and Radio Shack looking, you know. So it's Mm -hmm. I just love seeing how that and then you get the guys that build the cars, you know, they have to decipher these sketches and make it happen. So but it's just, you know, Chafe, Knight Rider. Uh, Probert, Battlestar Galactic, Star Trek, and Airwolf. You know, mm-hmm. and the DeLorean Time Machine is nothing like them. <laughs> yep, all different. Which yeah. that just shows that just shows some artistic ability to be able to switch gears and make completely different things that are all that iconic. It's kind yep. of impressive, actually. Yep. And then, like the Ecto One with Stephen Dane, and Stephen Dane also, I think, was on uh, uh, Buckaroo, which Michael Fink was on Buckaroo too. But I think Stephen Dane also did a lot with. Uh, uh, Ridley Scott on Blade Runner. See, so there was a definite aesthetic going on with those films at that time. And, you know, there's a lineage there and it's kind of funny, but 
I mean, it's kind of interesting. You don't really think Ridley Scott having that much effect on Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, but I think it had a bigger effect than people really, really know, you know? And that's all because of Alien, you know? Uh, the, the aesthetic he put in Alien and then Blade Runner. Yep. And then, but then, um, you before we, before, before that. Sorry. Before we head out of here, I do want to take a second and thank the people that support the show financially. And those people include Best Man Al Schultz from New York Woodworks, Scott Orm from Daddy Yourself DIY, Ed Swanson from Ed's Clocks and More, Nick Birchtold of Birchtold Design Build, Tori Decker from Tori Did It, Jake Drews of Make With Jake, Megan Chris from Onyx Designs Woodwork, Christian Neary of Warren Works, Ken Madden of Mad K Studios, David Wood of DW Woodbuilds, Dean Duplantis, Chris Raley of Route 9 Signs. Jeff Stein, a weird guy, Kim and Garrett from Kim and Garrett Make It, Rory Langefeld of RLO Woodworks and DIY, Robert J. Keller, Brian Arsenault, the Seven Hills Maker, Dave Bauer of Dave Bauer Art, Donald LeBlanc of Fun with Woodworking, Ross Cave, Jeremy Spies, Grant Alexander from the Clamp Podcast, Brad Harrison of Brad's Customs, Billy Poulton of Poulton Projects, Eric Peterson from Overall Maker Works, and Earl Van Alstein. I am so grateful for all the support financially for this show. Um, if you have the means, I would appreciate it if you head on over to vincentmferrari.com slash support and supported the show. But if you can't support the show financially, sharing the show, letting other people know about it. If you find a guest that you find interesting, letting the world know that I talked to that guest, that would be pretty cool too, because I love to promote the guests when they're on the show. It's the As I told Tom before, it's the currency of doing the podcast. You promote the people that come on. And Tom, I am so grateful and so thankful that you came on. The funny story, the funny story, and I've told the listeners, but I don't think I've actually told you, is so I met I actually met you on Saturday and we chatted about the car. And I we got back to my fiance's sister's house, which is where we were staying for the weekend. And I was talking, I was like, and my fiance goes, You should have him on the podcast. And I went, damn. I should have him on the podcast. So then the next day I was like, yeah, you want to come on? You're like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So I'm very, very, very honored to have you on. I really did your, your car, not just for me, but for my, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law and my fiance was one of the highlights of the show. Just seeing it. They, we've all, we all talked about it quite a bit afterwards and how, how, how nice you were to me and how much time you spent chatting with me <laughs> while they, they were like, yeah, we're going to go walk a little bit, catch up to us. I'm like, okay, I'll get there. <laughs> so, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I, at the end of the day, yeah, I did do it for me cause I wanted to do uh -huh. it, you know, but um, when other people get to enjoy it or enjoy the magic of the movie, um, you know, or, you know, continue the legacy of the people that built the movies, you know, it's neat. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the thing is I never got out to Hollywood, but, you know, working on a couple of the documentaries with the back to the future, um, you know, I mean, you know, on the Blu-ray sets, some of the special features I've been involved with and, you mm -hmm. know, for the 10 year old me to pop in the Blu-ray and get a credit in there is, is, um, <laughs> very humbling and, and everything, um, I mean, I, it, it just happened that I got the chance to, to do some of that stuff. And, um, you know, I'm very thankful for all that. And, you know, I mean, like I said, too, you know, if you're in fandom or doing stuff, um, find good people to work with, like Stephen Clark at BackToFuture.com has helped me out a lot. Um, you know, so, you know, like I say, we're all fans, but there's always ways to find uh, a place in fandom. And, you know, if you do hard work, 
and uh, put your energy into it. You know, like like Doc says, your future is whatever you make it. So make it a good one. You know. I agree. Um, where can people find you online? Where can people find your book? Where can people find more information about you? Uh, I mean, I am on Facebook and I, you know, I mean, I do, you know, I mean, I'm not any, I'm just another fan. I'm not some like celebrity. So, I mean, I am on Facebook. I, uh, there's a, uh, BTF archives on Facebook, um, is my, mostly my stuff. I have a couple editors that help me out, but, uh, 95% of all the content on there is stuff I've put together. Um, the book, uh, you can get that through amazon.com. They are the ones that print it, uh, back to the future.com does carry it. Um, so if you want to support back to the future.com, buy the book from them. Although I know, uh, he just put an order and he just sold out, but, uh, um, he will be stocking him soon because I okay. handle that for him. But, um, you know, I mean, the book is build it, uh, build it with some style on unauthorized tales of the DeLorean time machine. Um, I have a lot of photos inside the book of the actual cars. And like I said, it's all about how they made the, the movies and the, the film cars. And uh, I do discuss the restorations of two of the cars that were restored. One of the part three cars and the A car, of course. Excellent. Um, I'm, I will have the links for backtothefuture.com and the Amazon link so people can pick up the book and uh, check it out because I know that I know that with this podcast in particular, a lot of my listeners like to nerd out about stuff and there's nothing nerdier than nerding out about the creation <laughs> of a specific prop because I geek out about that kind of stuff all the time, which is why I've enjoyed talking to you so much. So thank you so much for giving oh, me so welcome. much. Oh, you're and welcome. Thank you for coming on. Um, I will, um, I'll have all of Tom's links and ways to contact him, find his book and all that in the show notes so that you can, uh, keep up with what he's up to. He's, um, he's a really cool guy and he's definitely friendly. So you could chat with him. He won't bite. Um, until next week, have a great week, everybody. I will chat with you then. <laughs>